Hopefully everyone here is, is familiar with, uh, with Kathleen's work. Uh, we have these giant copies of Neil the Horse that Conundrum printed recently, which is... This, this is the Neil the Horse phone book. And <laughs> the best thing about it is... <laughs> I love doing that. And this is, this is a really fantastic thing to see back in print because um, you were kind of, you had a long uh, career in many different avenues that all tied back to comics and cartooning. And then it all ended. <laughs> and, and restarted, hopefully. I think so. Okay. Yeah. In 1993, for whatever reason, and I've got ideas why, but uh, suddenly, after 18 years of publishing The Old Horse, Suddenly, nobody could publish me. No comic company in North America was even slightly interested. What was what was the uh, the feeling kind of in the car the, the comic book scene or the, the indie comic book scene at the time? Well, for a start, it was almost gone. You know, we had the black and white boom in the in the eighties, and Neil was part of that. So, and for a while, p people publishing comics in, in black and white, which is cheap. Um, you know, could do almost anything and, and find a, a readership. Right, right. Um, and I, I don't know what happened, but it, it, it ended. Mm -hmm. That period ended. And recently, people have told me I shouldn't feel too bad about not being able to get published in the early 90s because nobody could, supposedly, as I've been told. Yeah, it was a really bizarre time for some people. Um, it's it looked back on as this, this this great era of comic books becoming kind of collector cards things and right. and several cartoonists becoming rock stars, but the art of cartooning I think has really suffered at all of that. Yeah, because I mean the, the boom that you were referring to was all superheroes. Right, certainly. <laughs> Where are we going with that? You know, it's not it's there it can't possibly be anything more to add to to, to the saga of superheroes. Right, it's it's. it's often what I think is well. <laughs> so I don't know I don't know whether it was you know conditions in the market or whether uh, my book is so terrible nobody wanted to publish it but I kind of took it on as that actually mm -hmm. I, I was very very depressed and unhappy that I couldn't get published because all I'd ever wanted to do or mostly anyway was, was comics and I'd had a good reception for a number of years you know and and then it was over suddenly and uh, I, I didn't even know what, what to do next. It, it was very... Well, I've been really fascinated with careers that survived that era, and some of them were very... Um, there's, there's one cartoonist I became friends with who started out doing very kind of Japanese-influenced manga things. Oh, yeah. And he just ended up doing fetish artwork for that entire period. Right. And then suddenly, you know, much like you with the reprint of this, is suddenly seeing a resurgence of interest in him actually doing personal creative work. And right. then suddenly, like, oh, that again, I can be a cartoonist. So I, it's almost like uh, the art form is finally recovering from a <laughs> weird period, hopefully. But I, I want to go back and talk about kind of the beginning of your your um, your interest in cartooning and, and the the work that first that first kind of sparked your your want to do it. Well, <laughs> I cannot remember a time in my life when, when I wasn't fascinated by comics. And I can remember back to when I was two years old. I've got very clear memories of incidents and, and the house we used to live in. I could draw the floor plan still when I was two years old. Mm -hmm. So I've got a good memory of, of the past. And as far back as I can remember, reading comics and then trying to draw comics was the main, those are the main things I thought about even, even then. Right. And um, my mom loved comics. She had uh, clipped and saved the 1930s Terrian Pirates. And I still have those scrapbooks. And uh, so, uh, so I grew up in the late 40s and in the 50s um, reading the most wonderful comic, practically, well, maybe not the most, but a very wonderful comic, Carrying the Pirates by Milton Kniff. And other people of my age didn't get a chance to see Carrying the Pirates until what? I don't know, the 80s or right. 90s or something. So just with the support of your parents having this stuff around to show you? Well, my mother, not my father. Than anything good from my father, <laughs> unfortunately. Um, and my mom discovered comic books in Dunbar in, in the early 50s at a, at a, a drugstore, Nightingale's drugstore on 41st and Dunbar. And uh, she started buying them because she was interested in them. Yeah. And then she had four kids, I was the oldest. 
and uh, she started reading it to us, and that's how Karl Marx entered my life. Uh-huh. And uh, I, I remember the whole family sitting around with mom reading it to us, and we would just all be howling with laughter. Mm-hmm. It was a really family activity, it was really great. And that's such a jump from Kniff to Marx, too. Strangely, I didn't think of that at the time. Hmm. So it's very odd to say that my rubber hose singing and dancing uh, horse the two, the two main influences are Milton Kniff and, and Karl Marx. Right. Well, in a weird way, that's kind of um, that spreads quite. It's quite a, a, a breadth of cartooning just in those two names. Yes, it does encompass mm-hmm. <laughs> And uh, actually, um, now that I'm allowed to do comics again, um, I'm going to be starting to do more. And I want to do some long adventure stories. And an adventure stories up Kniff's alley. Yeah, Although Barks too, but I think I think that that influence is going to show more. Oh, fantastic! Yeah, if I, cool. if I live long enough. And uh, and later on in your, and we're jumping quite a few years, but later on, you you got a chance to interview uh, certainly Kniff, right? Yes, I never got a chance to interview Barks. It was mm-hmm. very elusive. Oh yeah, because I'm most. I mean, my understanding is, uh, for most of his career, nobody knew even knew his name. That's right. He's the good duck artist. Yeah, yeah. Did I learned his name in 1968. Okay. From Don and Maggie Thompson. Oh, nice. How, how did that? How did that come about? Um, how did that come about? I don't know. I, I think I, I've been in touch with them by mail in those days. Um, and and, and I, I, don't, I don't know. They just in a letter they they, they told me that that was his name. Do you think early on you had an idea of? Cartoonist as a, as a cartoonist as a career, were you thinking about where the work was coming from? Yeah, I always knew because my mom was a cartoonist. Mm-hmm. And she was published in small magazines around Vancouver. Oh, fantastic! And my great grandmother, my, my mother's grandmother, was also a cartoonist, mm-hmm. and she was published in Manitoba around the turn of the century. So that was obvious to me that you know people would do it. Yeah, that's, that's, that's your line is set up for you. So your mother, I assume, was very supportive of you. Oh yes. Oh yes. Yeah, yeah. She she would help me when I couldn't figure out something, and uh, you know, and on into my adulthood, she, you know, she, she always avidly followed what I was doing. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, and I started drawing comics uh, when I was still under 10 years old. Mm-hmm. I don't mean to say I was published, <laughs> good lord, but um, at one point, I, uh, I, you know, I was aware of the daily and Sunday schedule of, of uh, newspaper comics, and um, I thought to myself, I think I was a little nine, I wondered if, if that's how it's done, you know, could I keep up that pace? If I wanted to be a cartoonist, could I possibly draw six dailies a, a week and a, and a colored Sunday page? So I did it for two years. I made up my own characters and sort of kind of uh, rip-off, basically. How old were you at the time? Nine. Oh, wow. And ten, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, so nine I did. and ten are like a million years to a nine and ten-year-old. So. Yes, yes. It, to me, it was you know, a solemn enterprise that I needed to do. I needed mm-hmm. to prove to myself that I could write and draw comics on that basis. Because at the time, and actually for a lot longer than that, I was still thinking about newspaper comics. Mm-hmm. And that, to this day, is my favorite kind of comics. Right. My collection, my collecting um, is... I'm still trying to get every single newspaper comic ever done. Oh, wow. Yeah, well, it's not going to happen. <laughs> but but I, I buy as many reprints as I can right, afford. Right, an attempt, get. even. Yes. Uh, yeah. So was it, was it not until college until you actually started doing published strips? Um, yeah, I guess so. Yeah. I was always drawing. I was yeah. always doing something. But uh, yeah, I think, I think that's right. Yeah, the first time I was ever published as a cartoonist was when I was... 18, I guess. Huh. Do you remember? Do you remember what that experience was like of seeing the drawings you've done suddenly uh, in the paper? Yeah, distributed. It's funny. I hadn't thought about that for a long time, but as soon as you say that, <laughs> I remember the thrill. I remember it was it, it was almost otherworldly because I you know draw a picture and mm-hmm. get to the editor and go away, and then you know when the paper came out, I looked at it. And there, you know, there was my drawing at reduced size, but it was so strange to, in a good way, mm-hmm. for me to see that, to, to, to realize I was now in the, in the club, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and I'd seen a million comics and cartoons um, in my life, you know, and 
and just sort of casually, casually accept there they are in the, on, on paper, you know, in the newspaper or whatever. And uh, <clears throat> then suddenly there was mine. Right. I felt I was real. Right. Fantastic. <laughs> but do you, at that time, when you were when you were at school, did you have were there other cartoonists around that you were interacting with? Uh, you mean like adult cartoonists? Yeah. Or, you mean? or just just uh, peers? Um, not a lot. Um, my first mentor was my junior high school art teacher, who was also a cartoonist. Oh, nice. Yeah, Ernie Harris was his name. And I knew him right up until his death when he was in his 90s. Um, first time I think I ever encountered other cartoonists of my age, it was not a pleasant experience. I started on the, on the UBC, yeah. at, at, at UBC. And uh, I was one of three cartoonists. <laughs> showed up and said, we're cartoonists and we want you to publish us. And one of them was a nice fellow. Mm -hmm. um, and the other one, I, don't, I never did get to know him very well, but his friends, it was really strange, he had friends who were his fans and supporters and they kept verbally attacking me. Oh, bizarre. Yeah, I mean, it was really competitive. Huh. And that wasn't what I thought I was doing. Oh, right. I wasn't trying to have a contest with anybody. <laughs> they've, got, they've got football games to play. They should leave the cartoonists alone. Right. Yeah. But, um, you know, I never really had a cartoon community at that hmm. time at all. Did, did uh, one come up eventually? I don't think really. Uh, not much of one. Um, uh, until I uh, started publishing the comics and started going to conventions. Right. Was, was Artwork Vanifying the first places that, the place that started coming up? Um, let me see. Well, the first thing I did with, with Neil mm -hmm. was I, I still, here, there I was in my mid to late 20s, and I'm still thinking about newspapers. Right. And so I did up a bunch of samples of Neil the Horse and um, drove all over British Columbia and uh, went to every single small weekly newspaper in the province and you know, to sell my weekly strip. I printed up a brochure and, and had samples, and, and I actually ended up with. 30 newspapers. Oh, nice. Which was amazing, yeah. That gave me something to lose, and many of them dwindled away. Hmm. Um, so, but even then, I, didn't, I wasn't in a cartoonist community because really in Vancouver, I don't think there was such a thing. Hmm. There were a few cartoonists around, like Len Norris and Roy Peterson, and uh, earlier Walt Dixon, right. but they weren't really a, a community. Hmm. And I imagine that's something that technology has certainly changed too, where, where cartooning back then is generally seen as a much more solitary right. endeavor. Yeah. Where now people can just put up a Skype video and, and be drawing next to their friend that's on another continent. Yes, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, there's no comparison. Ge you know, geographical isolation was, you know, was what would rule mm -hmm. a person's life. And also, I was of the hippie generation, very solidly <laughs> and and the cartoonists I mentioned a minute ago like Roy Peterson and, and uh, Lynn Norris they were of a much older generation right they were kind of chain smoking rolling up your sleeves cartoonists right yeah gruff is the operative word right. and uh, so I, you know I mean it's like trying to relate to my father and, you know not my peers right at all so finally Actually, when I moved out to uh, Toronto, where's that place? Oh, yeah, it's Toronto. Um, in 1977, I realized that I needed to get out of Vancouver because you know it was a real backwater you know, in those days. <laughs> and that I wasn't, I, I was in, in the small pond. So I, I decided if I wanted to make any kind of mark in Canadian media, that I needed to be in Toronto. Mm -hmm. So I went in 1977, and instantly I had a a group of, of peers. Uh, there was a group of cartoonists who were um, uh, somewhere, I think, syndicating, I guess, the, yeah. their own comics to weekly newspapers, just yeah. like I was. So I joined up with them and put Neil in with their group. And uh, we did that for about three years or something. And then finally the sales were just too minimal. Hmm. But it gave me a bunch of cartoonists right. to, to know. And, and there were so many others around. Uh, everybody, uh, uh, you know, of our age, any cartoonist of our age was avidly trying to to climb the greasy pole. Right. And uh, <laughs> so it was a, it was actually you know very sort of 
energetic community to, hmm. to, to be a part of. And was the was the CBC already involved in kind of cartooning shows around then before you um, started doing it? No, no, I started that. Okay. Yeah. And, and was that was that while you were doing some creative cartooning or afterwards? Yeah, at the same time. Okay. Same time that I was doing the strip and then doing the comic book. It's amazing how much energy you have when you're young. Yeah. I, mean, I, I can barely, st you know, stay awake to eat lunch, but. Um, <laughs> you know what I mean. <laughs> and um, where was I? Uh, what did you ask me again? Oh, the uh, the CBC radio. Show. Oh, CBC. Yeah, yeah. I was interviewed a couple of times, I guess, here in Vancouver on local CBC. Um, trying to make a hammer out. Um, and and they liked the way I could talk, mm -hmm. like my sense of humor. So I, I was commissioned to do a few other little bits, like they sent me out to, to the PE to, to review the junk food. It's just silliness, but uh, it, it made me some money, which right. is a good thing. We still used money back in those days. And um, so then when I, when I moved to, to Toronto, um, I went into this national CBC mm -hmm. to see if they wanted to, to use me. And a funny thing happened, probably everybody here remembers Vicky Gabriel, the, the briefly famous radio and TV personality. Um, she was, a, at that time, she was a producer at CBC mm -hmm. Radio. Um, and I went, I've been giving her names, so I went in and spoke to her. And she told me later, several years later, that she had misunderstood something, somehow, of what I'd said. And she thought that I was way more experienced <laughs> and qualified than in fact I was. So they put me on the air right away. Oh, wow. Yeah, started doing you know, talking about comics. Yeah, whatever you said, keep it up. Yeah, just, just keep talking. So I did. And uh, but then when Don Heron took over the show a few months later, um, turned out he was an ex-cartoonist and a cartoon fan. So my segments just got sort of bigger and bigger, longer and fancier and on a higher budget. And I started adapting the great old comics, uh, the ones that I love so much from early in the 20th century. Because uh, I've got this huge collection of them, it's much huger now. And uh, so let's say, for example, we were going to do one about bringing up Father, Maggie and Jigs. Well, I would, uh, actually, that might be a bad example, because normally I would have someone to interview. I didn't have anybody to interview on that one. Okay. McManus was already dead, but let's go on with that. I, I went home and pulled out all my stacks of clipped Sunday pages from the 20s and 30s. and. Uh, Tried to read through, trying to find ones that were not excessively visual. I had because we, you know, on, on radio you have to have voices. Right. That that often comes up lately when people talk about reviewing comics and and the strength your reviewer can often be told if they can review a silent, a, right. like a wordless comic. It's not that hard. But yeah. you can't but you can't adapt a wordless comic. Right. Right. For for radio, well you could, but it wouldn't be very exciting. Uh -huh. for nothing. Um, Famous silent radio. Yeah, that's my favorite. But um, anyway, so I would come up with a script. Like it, it was, you know, five to ten minute long skit, skit. And then Don and I would take parts and we'd call in other actors as needed. And we had, in those days, CBC had this wonderful live sound effects department. So as we were recording our, our voices, um, the sound effects guy would be over and, that's just being haunted, I believe. One more time. The sound effects guy would be doing whatever was needed, like opening and closing doors. Or mm -hmm. with Maggie and Jigs, Maggie was always throwing dishes at at, at Jigs. So he actually threw dishes, which was great. <laughs> I'm surprised there's not something that sounds more like throwing dishes than throwing dishes. Yeah, because often they did use something that didn't right. anything like it. That's only excuse to throw a dish. Yeah, he had a special set of them, too, that he brought in with him, <laughs> ready to go. And uh, so and it was just great fun. I did that for about five years, and I don't think I've ever had as much fun in my life as I did adapting those strips, because they always came, came to life. And, and in most of them, I did have someone to interview. Mm -hmm. But even when I didn't, I would give the history and tell, talk about what was special about it. And would you do the voices as well? Uh, well, in, in the skits, I would do one voice. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would, I would choose one that I could do. 
know, we all, all the other people acting were much better than me, but I didn't care because I wrote it, so yeah. it's going to be my script. <laughs> and, and later, then I did a Neil the Horse radio play, radio, okay. radio musical, and I had the experience of producing those short skits so that suddenly from standing start, I, I wrote and produced and acted in and edited a two and a half hour Neil the Horse musical comedy complete with my songs. Right, and you were the voice of Neil, sorry. That's right. Well, hello. Hi, folks. This is Neil the Horse, and I'm glad you're here today to hear Catherine talk about the old days. <laughs> Fantastic. And I still, if there's ever a Neil voice needed, until, until my coffin is nailed shut, it's going to be me right. doing it. <laughs> I like that. And that came up, I mean, it's jumping, it's jumping a fair amount of years, but that came up much later with uh, your, your publishing, all, all of your interactions trying to get the Neil the Horse cartoon made. Um, what do you mean publishing? Or, or, I remember the, the, one of the later issues of the issue of the series you put out. Oh, oh yeah, the last issue of the comic book, right. number 15. Um, yeah, I, I'd had a project going on for several years, um, hiring people to help when, they, when needed, which was frequently, trying to adapt Neil the Horse for animation. Mm -hmm. And at that time, it was, like the, I think, absolutely the worst possible period to be trying to do animation, because it, it, it was the, the era of, of Strawberry Shortcake and My Little Pony and, right. and uh, He-Man versus whatever it was. And uh, just the, the absolute worst animated cartoons ever made. And they had all these rules for how to keep it commercial. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but you know, that's what was going on. I wanted to do animation, the only game in town. Right. So I tried to get some Canadian producers to, to, to you know, say, let's, let's do this. Let's do this project and do it differently. But I couldn't get anyone to do it. They were terrified of uh, doing anything that went against the the commercial norms. And uh, I soon learned to just be very contemptuous of Canadian producers. Mm. They're just, just absolutely useless. And um, so we tried to sell to the studios in Hollywood. And, but I had to adapt the characters uh, to make a, I hate the word, but they used to call it the show bible, a little booklet mm -hmm. of exactly what the characters would be doing, exactly where they lived, exactly what they were about, you know, and some sample stories and, and pictures. Right. And it was really hard not to end up with a piece of trash. But I... But right, because they're but, essentially asking you to make a huge amount of work that no one will see. Well, yes, but also I'm trying to adhere to the, the rules and regulations of commercial right, animation well. at that time. And I, I did it. I managed to, I think, we, I should say, me and my collaborators, mm -hmm. um, managed to you know, make it happen, to make it so that the, the, the rules were being followed and we still kept the spirit alive. Mm -hmm. And so I was very proud of that. And then for a number of years, me and, and my agent at that time um, went, went around uh, talking to the various animation studios that were in, in, in L.A. And we got optioned a number of times. Uh, and op when you get optioned, that means that they give you, at that time, it was usually $10,000. And that means that they have the right to pick up the project or not for, for six months. I couldn't sell it to anybody else. Mm. So I think that was optioned three times. So that was $30,000. That was nice. But they turned it down every time. Mm. I think, looking back on it now, I think at least one reason that, that it never got to production, is that they could tell that I was a, you know, a fussy and, and um, possessive person and, and wanted to control what they were going to do. And they just, I think they thought, well, we can't work with this person. <laughs> I think that was certainly part of it. But let me tell you something that happened. One of the studios, the last one, I think it was 1992, um, it was the Hollywood um, uh, branch office of Nelvana, the well-known animation studio uh, in, in Canada. Oh yeah, raccoons and rock and roll and all those things. Yeah, yeah. They started out trying to, be, trying to make good animation and they ended up making crap. <laughs> but, <laughs> but anyway, they took an option on, on Neil. And 
I could have predicted at that point. They passed on it finally. Yeah. Well, about 10 years later, but I didn't find this out until even a few more years after that, they did a pirate version of Neil's horse. They had Marvin the tap dancing horse, and, and Neil's best pal is an orange alley cat named Soapy, mm -hmm. and Marvin the tap dancing horse had a best pal, an orange alley cat, who acted as his manager, named Swifty. And they, this, the very first story that I ever did of Neil uh, was basically just copied. Hmm. Uh, they just, just pirated the whole the plot and the atmosphere and everything. And I've tried twice to sue them, and I can't get a copyright law firm to think it's worth suing. Hmm. So they made a bunch of money, and I didn't. And if I ever get Michael Hirsch alone in, in a room, I'm going to strangle him. That, that's after the panel. Oh, yeah, you've arranged him to be here? got him tied up on the back. Oh, great. Yeah. Great. Okay. Red hot pokers, too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> They're heating up. So what was the, what was the transition from, uh, from doing uh, uh, newspaper strips to, to comic books like for you? Well, first of all, it, it, it was something I didn't actually want. I, mm. pardon me, just grabbing my whistle letter. Um, I was really reluctant. Right, because you've grown up on, on the on newspaper strip. Yeah, but on, what was the real thing for you? Yeah, yeah, and, and uh, still my great love, pardon me a moment. It's like Popeye and spinach, now I can talk about <laughs> it. Um, but, you know, it was obvious. I mean, I'd, I'd seen the writing on the wall for over a decade. The newspaper strips were getting smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and more and more f formulaic. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, there was no future in, in newspaper strips, at least not for the kind of thing I wanted to do. I can't write punchlines to save my soul. Um, so I, I thought, okay, well, this is a chance. This is something I can take the characters and go and do this instead. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I, I don't remember exactly how it happened, but there was a book that came out where I'd been asked to do two stories. It was the Canadian Children's Annual or something like that. Um, and, and then the following year, there was the Canadian Comics Annual. So I, I think I did a total of four stories in those two books. and. Um, and that gave me a taste of doing, uh, doing comic books. Mm -hmm. But it, you know, that wasn't exactly a difficult leap because I've been reading Karl Barks you know, since the right. time was a wee tad. And uh, so I just said, okay, that's what I'm going to do. So it's a very different way of thinking about your content. Yeah, I was going to ask just, uh, I mean, simply just changing from, from doing like the size paper that you must have been working on to, uh, to, to comic book dimensions. And it doesn't help that I like to drop big. Mm -hmm. So my comic book originals, the, 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 this work with the, like this, huge. I drop really, really big. And a lot of that's, I think, I think uh, maybe years ago now, you told me about um, some original uh, Prince of Albion pages you saw that were like the door of a house. Exactly. Yes, I had the good fortune to interview Hal Foster, the man who did Prince of Albion, and. Um, he, he only had one original page of all the thousands that he had drawn, and he kept it in a closet in his bedroom. <laughs> so he led me in to look at it. He opened the, the closet, and uh, the two big louvered doors, and there it was, standing there, it was taller than us, you know. Because his pages were always published, they had a whole broadsheet size page. So to, to, you know, to be bigger than that, uh, it had to be huge, and he actually, used to cut it in, into three, mm -hmm. because it, his pages always had three, three tiers. Right. Uh, and so then, but for this one that was in the closet, he'd take them back together again. Huh. I've never seen a, a comic page so big as that one. That's impressive. What was Hal Foster's house like, or palace, I imagine? It, no, it was very modest. Huh. This, this is when he was really old. Mm -hmm. It was the last interview he ever gave, and I was surprised he got through it. Um, he was, he had, since he'd long since retired at that point. And he'd moved from his, what I think was a big fancy house in Connecticut, he'd moved down to Florida. Why, I don't know. But, um, so it was just a little bungalow. Huh. He and his wife were living in. Not fancy in the slightest. Interesting. I don't think he, he wanted for money, but I don't think he had fancy taste. Oh, right. yeah, so. It's always strange connecting the, the fantasy world to these artists, to the, to the real life people. <laughs> well, <laughs> Creator living down in a bungalow in Florida. So. 
<laughs> ridiculous to me. Well, I'm sure that when he was in his prime, that mm -hmm. he had a bigger place. And as a matter of fact, he, he told me that he had woods around around his house in Connecticut. And he was an avid hunter. And he told me that occasionally he would lean out the window from his studio and shoot birds. <laughs> <laughs> Just between inking? Yes. Yeah, oh, there's a bird. Put pen down. <laughs> Give me the shotgun. You never know. I never would have guessed how much murder was involved in the creation of Prince Valley. <laughs> well, you should see by the content. Oh. A lot of murder in the stories. True. Yeah. <laughs> um, do, you, do you feel like the uh, the interviews you did and the interactions you had with uh, with the cartoonists when doing the CBC work influenced how you approached your own work? Not very much. Hmm. Um, it was the, the, doing that in, interviewing. You know, couple of dozen of the greatest cartoonists ever is really more feeding my fan <laughs> fan uh, instincts right, sure. trying to get closer to, to the source of the wonderful art that, mm. that I loved and try to understand what they thought they were doing because the, actually I did this one uh, series of five programs on the ideas show that, on a subject that really puzzled me and deeply puzzled me which was at that time, this is the late 70s, at that time it was still an unchallenged belief that all comics, anywhere, by anybody, were trash, utter garbage. Nothing to be respected in the slightest. You can laugh at them, maybe, or get a faint thrill out of an adventure story, but don't try to tell anybody that this means anything. Hmm. You know, that was the attitude of society in general. And I knew that, that there was more than that. That was just a stupid opinion, that, you know, and, I, and, I, and it was going to inhibit me in my work as I went ahead. So I, I wanted to ask the very best cartoonist in the whole bloody world, what did they think on that subject? And I must say it was very disheartening, because even as great as, say, Milton Kniff was, um, he would just dismiss the whole subject. He said, oh, I'm just trying to sell the newspapers. Huh. I just want to sell tomorrow's newspaper. Do you think that was almost... Um the defense mechanism? Yes, I do think so. Because he obviously accepted long since uh, that he was not going to be allowed to rise above a certain level of cultural respectability. Right, but it's hard to think that that guy put anything but um, a ridiculous amount of love and devotion to everything he drew in his life. Well, it was very, very strange. Because, you know, the artists who I, whose work I, I loved all my life and and that I, that I found that I thought they were this far from transcending sheer commercialism, uh -huh. just one more inch forward, and, and, and they, you know, they could have been doing work that had more depth to it. Certainly. But they just didn't want to talk about it. Hmm. They just either they didn't understand, or they didn't want to think about it. Did that? Did you feel like that was that was true across the board with everyone you talked to? All but one. The one who was different and. And it's not going to surprise you. It was Will Eisner. Oh, right. And I happened to be visiting Will Eisner in his studio the day that he'd received back from the printer his first batch of his first graphic novel, mm. Contract with God. And he gave me one and signed it. And he said something to the effect of, gee whiz, I, I hope people are going to like this because I want to do more of these. Right. And we, you know, he, he changed North American comics or possibly global comics with his series of, of graphic novels, and to, to see him being so tentative and worried about it, this great master. But he, yeah, he definitely wanted comics to be more like I wanted to be. Right. And he did it. He did it in his graphic novels. I, I think he could have gone even further. But, oh, uh, certainly. But I, he certainly laid down the groundwork. Absolutely, yeah. So that was, that was heartening to me that finally somebody wasn't going to just poo-poo the whole idea. Yeah, and I've always admired that Eisner, while a lot of other cartoonists stuck with, you know, essentially boys' adventure comics that could sell easier, Eisner seemed to make uh, comic books for himself as he got older. And he was right. like, here's, here's some comic books about retirement and golfing. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> real, real life. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and that's exactly what I was trying to get at. Mm -hmm. And he was the only one who seemed prepared to even think about it. I guess I just have to say that the old greats, you know, they were brainwashed from, from the beginning. Well, it's got to be hard to, to take something so seriously and then every interaction you have be shot down in its seriousness. Well, I, was, I was flabbergasted. Mm -hmm. I came home, you know, with a bunch of these interviews and was trying to put this 
series of examining the subject, trying to put them together, and I just uh, didn't know where to take it because I didn't get anywhere. Hmm. So finally, I examined it and you know gave alternative views on what could have been and stuff like that. Right. But um, you know, it, when I got to the end, uh, it's still it's the same situation. I hadn't improved at all. I did do an interview on telephone with the great Italian cartoonist Hugo Pratt. You know what? Yeah. Colonel Maltese fan. Yes, yes. And um, he said he was aware of the situation, you know, how could you not be? And he said that he felt, and I think he was right, that the European cartoonists of his generation and the next um, had taken what the American cartoonists had, had done and taken it further, mm -hmm. that they had taken it further, which is certainly true of Hugo Pratt's work. Yeah, and I, I feel like a lot of that has, I mean, he certainly influenced generations past him and it's starting to boomerang back from there and Asia to America where, where kids are growing up on European and Japanese comics right. and, and suddenly taking it more seriously than the well, older yeah, generation. Hugo yeah. Pratt actually put it in terms of Passing the baton. Oh, nice. How was his English when he talked? Oh, very good. Very good. Italian accented, but very understandable. Mm. He said that you know, the, the, baton, the baton was passed to the Europeans. He wasn't thinking about Asia at that point, because who was? Okay. Um, he said, well, you know, someday soon we'll pass the baton back again. Mm -hmm. and I think that's what's been happening now. And, you know, it's a whole worldwide movement of, of literate and, and high. Yeah, I was just in uh, I was just in Italy this past year, and oh, yeah. uh, they for the, the festival I was at, there was a they made a probably fairly flimsy, but it was a statue of his character life size. Of Corvo Maltese. Yeah, it, oh. was, it was fantastic to see. I mean, a two dimensional yeah, actual yeah. statue. I have photos of him on my phone actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it was, it was it's great to see that that he's there's a drink named the Corvo Maltese over there, really? which I couldn't find a bar to make me, but but oh, you got your recipe? I, I have it in print, yeah. Oh, you make it yourself? All right, deal. <laughs> I, I wanted to say about this series, this five-part series on, on ideas, it was ruined by the producer. Hmm. I don't know if you have tried to listen to it, but what happened was I, you know, I had a bunch of clips of the, of the cartoonists. Right. I found the quotes that I wanted to use, and then I wrote a script of what, the, what I was supposed to be saying. Hmm. But I, I wanted to do it very differently than the producer wanted. He wanted me to write it out word for word and then read it word for word. And I knew it would come across like a reanimated corpse. <laughs> I can't do that. I'm not an actor, you know. I wanted to have point form. This is what I always did on the morning side show with Don Heron. I wanted to have point form and actually spontaneously form the sentences as I was thinking. Because that's what I'm good at. But he wouldn't let me do it, and it came across as terrible. That's frustrating. Yeah, I'm going to redo it. Oh, good. I hope. I, I'd like to redo it and put it out on the web. So I've still got the original script, and I've still got the tape clips, mm -hmm. and uh, I don't know if I'll get to this or not, because I've got a lot of things I'd like to do before I feel over, but, um, which is like next week. But, um, Busy week then. Yeah, I'm going to get going. But, but I'd really like to make it listenable. I wouldn't recommend anybody to listen to it now. Hmm. It was just terrible. I don't know why he was like that. Well, he just spoiled Brad. Was that was that kind of the? Are you how do you, how do you feel about the other audio work you've done? The I oh I, I love it all. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Especially I mean I and in, in reading on the internet, I remember I, I read something about kind of the culmination in the in Neil the Horse musical. That, that was the culmination of my. Well, at least it was the end of the week. Well, it was about it was about the last thing I did actually. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it was a combination in the sense of the skits, you know, okay. combination of my ability to put funny cartoons on the radio. Right. But um, the journalism part, the, the, when I was just back in Toronto at TCAF, and getting more, um, <laughs> um, uh, what's his name, Brad McKay, uh -huh. um, kept stressing in various conversations and in print and, and, and in the event itself, kept stressing my, apparently, supposedly, groundbreaking discussions of, of comics mm -hmm. at a time when nobody else was doing that. Yeah, I certainly can't think of anyone else doing that. Yeah. You, I, I, were you aware of any? No. Were you even no. thinking that, that people? 
Well, I, 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 I never thought about it as groundbreaking and trying to make something different happen. Uh, I just wanted to talk about it. Right. I guess I hoped somebody would listen and care. And really, what's amazing is that now, how many years later, you know, 35 years later or something, exactly what I envisioned is actually happening. Mm-hmm. All these, this huge number of comics that are right out there, and, uh, and there's just more every day. And most of them, or very many of them anyway, um, you know, really of high artistic value. And, and people are tackling any subject and every subject. <laughs> and, uh, but I couldn't possibly have predicted in the late 70s, early 80s, that my, my, my uh, dream would come true. And I'm so glad that it's happened. I'm wondering if it went in any, in, in the, if the cartooning that you see is up and now has gone in any direction that you would have expected. Like, if, if, if you would have looked at Eisner's work when it was coming out and to see what it would lead to now, like, what do you expect to, because um, I, you know, I'm, you know, two or three years younger than you and I, and I, uh, <laughs> decades younger, I think. <laughs> and I, uh, uh, you know, I, I'm kind of amazed at, at where things go and how, like, you know, that if teenage me saw how much like gay romance comics I'm reading right. these days, you would be baffled. You know? Well, I don't think I, I could have predicted that. Mm-hmm. Nobody in the world could have predicted that you know, gay. What did they used to call it? Gay liberation or something mm-hmm. would actually succeed. Mm-hmm. You know, we, I mean, I always thought, well, it's not going to happen. They're going to keep killing us no matter what. But uh, so many unexpected things happen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but um, yeah, I, I can't say that that the work that's uh, around now um, mostly really would surprise me. I mean, it is pretty much what I wanted, but that is to say, I wanted people to express themselves uh, right. uh, with, with, with no fetters on them at all. I didn't want people to be held back, but I don't think I, I, would, could, I wouldn't have wanted to prescribe what the content should be, hmm. just intelligent adult material, right. funny or not, whatever, you know, no, just no limits. And um, so it worked. But I don't think I was the one that made it happen. <laughs> as long as it's happening. As long as it's happening. So how was, what, did the, what was the comics, what was kind of the feel of the comics community when you started doing the, uh, the more comic book comics? Oh, I, I don't think anybody noticed or cared. Yeah? Was it? I didn't exactly have a following, you know? <laughs> well, if I ran into the stuff and, and uh, I imagine it was out there, did you, were you just not getting much feedback? Well, once the comic book started coming out, when, when Aardvark Vanaheim and then later Renegade started putting Neil on in the comic book, I did get letters. Okay. But I, I don't think it, that any of those people who found the comic book and wrote letters had ever seen the newspaper strip. Because hmm. it was published only in Canada. Right. And in very, very few newspapers. Right, the comics making it all over the continental United States. Yeah, and, and English-speaking world. It was mm-hmm. in Australia, England, South Africa. I would get letters from the goddamnest places. <laughs> did you have much interaction with, um, you know, like did you meet Dave Sim initially before working for Edward Vanaheim? Not before. You know, how that whole comic book came about was there was an um, art show at, at U of T mm-hmm. put on by somebody for some reason, an art show of comics, and then I've been asked to put some pages in, and uh, they were the ones that had been published in that children's annual. And then, uh, as I found out later, Dave and Denny went to, to that show right. and found my work hanging on the wall. And they've been thinking about trying to branch out and publish more stuff besides Cerebus. So they asked me if I would do it. And we talked about it for about a year and a half before we, before we got going. But I got to know both of them very well at that point. And now Denny and I are still friends. Oh, I just nice. spoke to her on the phone about an hour ago. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, she'll be here tomorrow. Because she, my understanding is she split off and um, started Renegade Press after yeah, the you know, she, Yeah, she and, she and Dave separated as, as a couple. And, uh, and Dave was, I think, perfectly happy to let her take all the properties except yeah. Sarah. Because I remember Renegade Press having a fair amount more books than Aardvark Van Ham. Oh, yeah. Aardvark Van Ham only had Sarah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and a lot of artists. Maybe Puma Blues at one point. What was that? Was Puma Blues then as well? I, I never heard of that. Oh, okay. Anyway. But you know, the, the, the titles that, that Renegade uh, was publishing 
and the artists that were publishing went on to, most of them went on to be quite well known. And, yeah, it's fantastic stuff. And yeah, Bob Burton's Flaming Carrot, oh, yeah. and Max Allen Collins, uh, who's written all kinds of mm-hmm. detective stuff. Yeah, and Bob Burton's work went on to, uh, was it Mystery Men, the film made of his stuff? I don't know. Uh, or in, yeah, they made one made. They took out Jumpin' Jehoshaphat, which is my favorite character of his. Just like a background side character, I always love the, the name. Um, but yeah, they, they had uh, French Ice, I believe, was that? So I don't know that either. It was a translated um, French joke comics. It was, it was fantastic. Oh. The Mobius cover. You know more than I do. Obsessing all this. <laughs> you were busy working when I was. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've always had a, a, a great capacity for ignoring things I'm not interested in. Yeah. If I, if I don't... I wish I had that magic power. Yeah. <laughs> if I'm not interested in something, it's like it doesn't exist. And I, okay, somebody else can think about that. It's called being a snob. I like it. Yeah. <laughs> I think our time is good. Mm-hmm. What's that? I think the time. We're out of time. Oh, okay. You may be out of time. We're not. <laughs> <laughs> what time is it? Uh, there's nothing after this one, actually. Okay, yeah, we can we can wrap it up. Um, so yeah, I guess I'm interested in, in kind of just hearing about how it feels to return and have like how was Toronto for you? Well, yeah, in Toronto I got the Giants of the North Award, which is like a Hall of Fame it's award. Fantastic. And I had a Hall of Fame award from the other Canadian Comics Hall of Fame uh, three or four years ago. So I'm well, I'm, I'm well honored at this point, but I feel, I said this in my acceptance speech, that now I have to do the work that they gave, gave me the, the, the awards for. Because this, you know, this is work that I stopped doing in my early 40s. Mm-hmm. And I should have gone on to do more, but since I couldn't get published, I didn't do it. Right. Um, so now I have to try to come alive again and, <laughs> and, uh, and, and do the work I had hoped to do. Um, but it was really quite extraordinary in, in Toronto to have famous cartoonists like Seth and oh, Chester Brown coming up and, and saying nice things to me. You know, right. both of those two said that they read me when they were young. Oh yeah, of course they did. Yeah, <laughs> I wouldn't have guessed. Well, it. it feels like a huge turnaround for me. I have Robin, our, our good friend Robin, would, would, would drag me over to your house sometimes and um, would pick your brain about comic books. And, and at the time, it, it felt very much like you were like there was something behind you. So it's. Um, yeah, really fantastic to see that that is now seems to be something you're looking forward to again. Well, now the the next thing is to see if I can actually do it. Yeah. Because I, sh- I sh- should say I don't really mean to emphasize this, but I've been very sick for the last few years. And we're not bad today, but I go up and down a lot. Yeah, some, some some days when I just can't even get up, and um, I don't know. I think it's more under control now. It's mainly diabetes that's just gone wildly out of control. I just about died two months ago. The, the emergency medical department at the BGH saved my life. And uh, so that, that tends to kind of put a scare into you. you know? <laughs> it makes me think I'm not going to be able to do very much more work. Also, my family doesn't live to be very old. They're usually all dead by about 82, and they're usually preceded by Alzheimer's. Mm. So I've got about then, 15 or 20 minutes to go before I, before I could stop. But, you know, it, so it's kind of ironic and sad and irritating that I was stopped from doing the work I wanted to do way back when I had momentum and certainly. energy. But I'm going to do my best. Good. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm certainly very glad that you're back in comics. I think your, your voice is really important. Thank you. It's going to be different. It's a different world, you know, than, than it was in the 70s and 80s. Mm-hmm. It seems like a different world. Maybe it's just because I'm old and crabby. But it seems that the, at the moment, the human race is exhibiting its absolutely worst characteristics all over the place. I can't argue that. <laughs> and so it makes, it makes for a world that's more depressing and less apt to be depicted, uh, you know, with singing and dancing horses. It's just a, it's, I would feel stupid trying to do it from the same point of view. Hmm. But I'm going to use the same characters, at least to begin with. and. Um, do tell different kinds of stories. Most of, or many of the stories in here are about the core activity uh, of my three main characters, which is trying to make it in show business. Right, certainly. So, so they can put on a show. And um, I don't think I'll stop having songs in the stories, not completely. 
Uh, and I'll probably even have them put on the show sometimes. But I want to do things from a different point of view. Um, I don't want it to be somber, but I think it has to be just a little bit more aware of what's happening in the world, have the characters re reacting or acting upon or reacting uh, to things that are more serious. Oh, certainly. Yeah, I think it would um, not, not mean as much to not have you reacting to 2017. Yeah, exactly. And I'll just tell you this, a little secret. I want to do some time travel stories. I love time travel oh, nice. stories. In fact, I'm seriously agreed that there's no such thing as a time machine. I want my money back. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to have to fantasize one. And I won't tell you how it's supposed to work, because I've got a cool idea. Oh, cool. As a time machine. I'm excited to read it. And, and yeah, thanks to everyone that, that uh, listened to us talk about this. Yes, thank you for all sitting there and not bolting for the exit. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, I do. Oh, questions, okay. <clears throat> Will you continue your cartooning career on the little blue desk? <laughs> you must be Michael. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> no, I lost track of that little blue desk. I don't know where it is, what happened to it. Because I was moving around so much. Somewhere in the past it got jettisoned, I guess. I wish I had it, just for old time's sake. <laughs> Yeah, I should have known that was you sitting there. <laughs> he wrote an article about me for the province oh, nice. in 1975. That's great. Right. Yeah. Wow. yeah. I never saw it again until yesterday when I got your email and you read that article. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. yeah. I don't remember. I guess I hadn't started the strip at that point. I was just about to start selling it. So it's just, just about the leaping off point when he, when he uh, interviewed me. Hmm. Any other questions? Um, you mentioned that at the end, just, just at the beginning of the boom and bust, the black and white bust, uh -huh. uh, that you had been doing work but couldn't find a publisher maybe for it. Yes. Did you just stop cartooning entirely, or is there unpublished work of yours that hasn't seen the light of day? Well, there's a, um, what we called then a graphic novel, which is unfinished. But I wouldn't call it a graphic novel now. It's too short. Because we used to say graphic novel for anything that was over 32 pages. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, it's mostly penciled and um, slightly inked. And I'm going to add about 12 more pages to it. That's the first project I'm going to do, actually. It's okay. finished finish my, my 1993 long story, X graphic novel. Um, and then I'll, I'll carry on from there. Are there uh, tapes or other records of the CBC shows that you did? Yes, I have most of them, possibly even all of them. And I'm planning to digitize them, and I'm planning to start a website, and I'm going to put them up there for free download. So there's going to be, I hope, a whole bunch of stuff. Also, the recorded music, the songs of Neil the Horse. I have wonderful recordings with really excellent jazz musicians. And, uh, and the radio play. I'm going to put that online, too, to, for download. And maybe if I ever do redo that idea series, I'll put that there. I figured just flood the market. <laughs> <laughs> Any other questions? Nope. OK. I guess people can rush for the exit now. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, thank you very much. Thank you, everybody.